Welcome to the eGovernance Academy podcast to discover the future of governance. eGovernance Academy has assisted digital transformation globally in more than 130 countries. Our experts will share their insights and worldwide examples on how digital technology could benefit every society. Tune in for the Digital Government Podcast every Wednesday. Welcome to another episode of the Digital Government Podcast. I am Federico Plantera, journalist, sociologist, and researcher. And today with me, I have Linnar Wieck, Program Director for Smart Governance at eGovernance Academy. Hi, Linnar. Hello, Federico. So today we're going to address quite an interesting topic. Also, a little, let's say, debated, ultimately, uh, considering that there are uh, that many talks on uh, the usage of funds and investments, let's say, both at the European and at the national level are happening right now. In, uh, in the continent. Why? Because a lot of countries are now drafting their uh, budgets, their state budgets for the next year. Uh, and at the same time, the European Union has said quite clearly that in order to recover from the, uh, the economic impact of the COVID crisis, we need to invest a lot more in digital. So today's topic is basically this, the digitalization of the economy and society as a whole. So, Linnar, starting from the fact that at the European level, we know that in the next seven years, about 150 billion euros will be invested in the economy. Um, what can favor at the national level the digitalization, as we said, not only of the public services and the government, but also of the society and the economy at large? It requires and it has a couple of pre um, uh, considerations which need to be in place and also some conditions that need to be placed. One of them is a digital agenda at the national level. And digital agenda which is not just looking for how public administration is using uh, digital technologies, but the digital agenda really in a broader sense, in the present sense, which is looking how uh, government is acting rather in a catalytic way towards a different economic sector and economic players to engage them into the digital transformation process. It's no longer just government's digital transformation, nor a certain sector alone digital transformation, but how different sectors together can do it. So this is one precondition on the national level. And second precondition, of course, is to understand what are actually the economic sectors a, a particular country wants to amplify with the help of this type of investments because we know that digitalization can amplify and make a benefit to all sectors of economy, tourism, travel, uh, transport, logistic, industry, agriculture, all kinds of sectors can be a very beneficial subjects of digitalization, but you can't do it all. You need to have a focus and, and a starting point. And usually the best starting point is the economic sector which is driving you. Let's take, for example, a Germany who has been very strong on industrial production and overall industrial uh, part uh, as a segment of the economy and very naturally also the aim towards moving all the digital investment to strengthen and build up the competitiveness of industry with the digital tools, calling them industry 4.0 and whatever other means is a very strong one. But we need to remember this is not something which fits all. In other countries, 
there might be an agricultural sector, forestry sector, or chemical industry, which is subject for being a driving force. So digital agenda and focus on a national level are very strong preconditions to make those investments which we are planning into really returns also for society. Especially considering the fact that these investments are happening both at the European level and at the national level. So the priorities can really be set straight, let's say, from country to country based on this variance, let's say, that there is from uh, from place to another. And it's interesting that you mentioned the example of Germany because notably, indeed, they were the first to come up even with the whole concept of Industry 4.0 with this uh, white paper in, uh, uh, in 2011. Uh, so... On this point, considering that we talked about the public sector and we talked about the investments that are coming at the European and at the national level, and we talked about the fact that they can be unlocked for the private sector. However, the two actors do not necessarily to be, do not need to be separate, let's say, or to be kept separate. So what, what I'm referring to is the framework of the public-private partnerships. So... Uh, this has been increasingly in fashion, let's say, in the past in the past decade, a lot. Especially, I mean, in Estonia, we have some notable examples also in that sense. But uh, what are then public-private partnerships, which we have mentioned also in other uh, past episodes of the podcast, and uh, how can they serve, let's say, this distributed digital development? On a strategic and a broader kind of. Uh, harmony level in the natural decision-making and planning cycles. Government, which still is a strong engine for the distribution of those funds, both national and European ones, have a better fit with universities and big enterprises because they speak the same language they have the same goals and targets which are often beyond one decade and they really have also internal capacities to intellectually address the topic. What we, however, see is that um, industry or the big enterprise level, university level and government level partnerships don't translate very quickly into a tangible new jobs, new products, new services, and competitiveness. So you need to engage also small and medium-sized companies, which are out of that formula at the moment because their needs are different, their problems are different, and they need to address also a different strategic picture. And also a companies that don't even yet exist – I call them not startup companies, but stand-up companies who are just pitching the idea <laughs> and are... Elevator uh, companies, yeah, basically, yes. <laughs> ...are about to emerge. So we need also to uh, find the ways how those funds and also a government focus can get closer to the stand-up, startup and scale-up companies who have a very different problem compared to a traditional private-public partnership uh, uh, trio 
enterprise, university and government. For example, on this differentiation that we just made between large companies and small medium enterprises, the um, Digital Economy and Society Index of the European Commission already in this year has, has shown that basically large companies adopt or tend to adopt digital technologies much more often and to a much larger extent than SMEs. Uh, at the same time, we also, the, the COVID crisis has brought another evidence uh, towards this direction, which is the fact that there are certain specific type of, types of companies which have managed to uh, reap some benefits, let's say, from the, uh, from the general economic downturn. And these, these companies are mainly uh, those led by tech entrepreneurs or those in the platform economy or the gig economy. So what is uh, at the moment impairing small medium enterprises to also access this technology? And is there, is there a problem of access or use, let's say, of digital technologies? First, it's very interesting that you mentioned that there are certain companies and certain segments of companies which benefited mostly out of the global lockdown. I would not say that we as a societies have benefited at all yet, and we have not certainly seen so far only the downturn of, uh, of the lockdown. However, I would say that the companies which were successful in mitigating the lockdown and the COVID crisis were not... Uh, companies which can be divided into different sectors or the age of the companies or the size of the companies, but it's about their DNA. The companies which have been born digital and their DNA is digital, whether they are five years old or 10 years old or just one year old companies, were able to become a virtual, truly virtual companies within a couple of hours. And this is really what I uh, have learned over, over this uh, summer period, that companies with a strong digital ENA were able to move into a fully digital uh, working flow with only a couple of hours of warning because they were already quite digital anyway. They only had to skip some of the office formalities and move some people to the different workflows which were quite easy to train for them. Also, those companies were rather successful in uh, hiring new people during the COVID crisis time because their HR and their uh, onboarding processes for the new employees were digital already. And they kept in mind the fact that uh, talents you are trying to get to your companies need to be nurtured also with the help of digital tools and digital environment. But those companies who are not digital by nature they had the biggest struggle to move their processes online or, or they went broke. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and in many cases also it's part of the nature of the uh, business uh, they are in. And also they had a difficult time when they were trying to hire new talents because their organization was not used to work online and uh, that was the biggest difference. When we look to the SME topics mm -hmm. uh, on 
traditional uh, sectors and economies uh, starting from the kind of starting even from the small bakeries uh, small agricultural companies uh, small industrial companies uh, then of course uh, uh, the fact that the present level has been relatively moderate in digitalization uh, and their focus was on creating a good product, creating a good service, which is valuable for the existing customer base. Uh, that model needs to be reshapen and it is not so much about access to the technology as itself, but it's about access to the capital which is needed to acquire that uh, new technology. But precondition, once again, to before acquiring the new digital technologies and making the investments for digitalization of your processes and activities is a digital strategy at the company level. And the understanding that... Uh, Digital investment requires also a different skills at your organization level, which in big organizations you somehow are able to manage, but um, and 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 very successfully also so-called digital DNA or digital-born companies were able to manage, but small and medium-sized companies really failed to translate their business processes into digital. So before making an investment to new digital technologies, strategy, and most importantly, a digital skill strategy needs to be taken into account. Digital skill strategy, which pertains not only the people who are already in the company, but also the people, indeed the talent, let's say, as you mentioned, that could potentially be hired also to upskill, let's say, the, um, the skill levels of the company in itself once you hire them. This shifts the focus, this topic, a little bit on the the skills side of the equation, let's say, of this of the labor market, uh, of the labor market dynamics, which is the fact that indeed um, the the DACI index of the European Commission was also measuring and assessing the digital skills, uh, and at the same time there is another uh, there is a very interesting research from uh, uh, Belgian and uh, and Dutch uh, researchers from a couple of years ago, which highlights how. Uh, in economies, in national economies, where uh, that are able actually to create new high-tech jobs, then there is basically a job multiplier on lower, uh, lowly skilled sectors, let's say, which means that basically for each high-tech job that is created, then five more in lower sectors on lower service sectors uh, can be created. I will then also post this reference in the uh, in the podcast blog that we will uh, that we'll attach to this recording. But at the same time, this means that some intervention needs to happen post-COVID to basically uh, give more momentum to the economy from the side of the people and of the human capital that the people have and can spend, let's say, and employ on the labor market. In this sense, I'm talking basically that there needs to be definitely more uh, digital, I mean, more savvy, let's say, and uh, cross-social groups, um, skill levels in, uh, in terms of digital use of digital technology and digital services, also for the employability in the companies. Linar, what's your point on this? In the sense, what do you think that could be done for what concerns the people side of this general framework post-COVID? It will be a key issue because whatever we see about the trends on development in technology, they happen fast. 
but uh, well, you can you can download a new up, uh, upgrade to your software, to your computer, to your, your iPhone, and it has a total new functionality. And you can't do it with human beings. You can't just upload a new software and wait that next morning we have a trained helicopter pilot or we have a high-class Java programmer uh, waking up in the morning uh, compatible to do everything. So it takes time and it takes steps. What I have seen uh, so far is... uh, on a government level, a, a non-strategic approach towards uh, upskilling of your society. And under non-strategic, I mean, it just happens under your eyes. The technology is flowing into the hands of children of the kindergarten and to the school children and to the pensioners and the parents and all the jobs and and every technology and driving the bus requires now some sort of skills of digital components and all the car repair and services. They all suddenly have become a hybrid digital jobs with some sort of digital competence. And you can't, once again, approach all uh, people and all sectors in the economy and all skill levels with the same strategy. So, first of all, the digital skill strategy needs to be not just one strategy for all, but it needs to be a very customer-centric or individual-centric strategy. One thing what I have seen as a successful stories have been so-called uh, private-public vouchers, where companies recognize the need of upskilling people. Say, take a regular storage house or supermarket where, with the help of new technology, you can have much more productivity at the supermarket level or at the storage house level or in the regular basic agriculture level. And uh, when company is recognizing it, they are willing also to co-contribute to that. Some t- uh, when government is putting in so-called digital training vouchers, then some digital training vouchers can be met with a company contribution like giving a free day. And this was a case in 2009 in Estonia, for example, when uh, um, pri- in a private-public partnership, a massive uh, um, so-called blue-collar workforce digital skills training took place. Employees gave paid extra free day for people to go to those trainings. And they did not put cash into that training, but they just let people go to the training. And they said, be away one day, be away two days, you are, you, are, like, you are paid to be away, and you come back, I'm certain, with a better skills. And companies even don't, you, they can't be sure that those better skilled people will come back and work in their organization because they are now better skilled, they can apply for the better job. And that also motivated employers to, to think about better working environment, more meaningful business processes in the job. So those are the small examples of the kind of uh, how to start from the low 
level digital skills and start growing them up. And there are many ladders uh, steps in that process. This is a perfect example of one of the complementary strategies that, for example, in the post-COVID economy, governments could uh, look into to drift, uh, progressively drift away from the welfare subsidy type of strategy, let's say, that was necessary, of course, during the COVID times. But then at some point, in any case, you need to put people back to work also because people want to go back to work. Actually. And, the, and the job they go back is now more and more digital. And unless they have new digital skills, they are not capable of performing it. So I agree very much with you. The post-COVID momentum of upskilling societies with the digital skills is there. Mm, it's dramatic. And also, there is one side, which is exactly the one that you mentioned, of the active labor market policies, which are, which can be, uh, they can be, um, how to say, uh, framed or planned or funded, of course, also these retraining programs uh, from at the government side. And so, for example, people currently in unemployment could re-enter the active labor force in this way, but at the same time, or, or also the inactive individuals, and there have been many uh, increased increasingly during the COVID crisis. But at the same time, there is also another point that you just hinted at right now, which is the fact of rethinking tasks at the same time. What does this mean? That in many sectors of the economy, particularly, for example, blue-collar jobs or also um, uh, lowly skilled service sector jobs, let's say, so white-collar but low-skilled, uh, Digital technologies can be integrated more and more in the daily tasks and activities of people. So this doesn't mean necessarily, for example, that as in the very, very gloomy forecasts of a few years ago, we were thinking, oh my God, ro all robots will take our jobs, etc. But it's just that when you look at occupations in themselves and the tasks within each of them, you can see that a part of the tasks that these people do can indeed be automated or can be facilitated by technology, but this doesn't mean that the person has to be replaced uh, at all. It means in most cases right now that the uh, content of the job of that particular person who is working in a more automated environment uh, with the help of digital technologies or, or applied robotics, the content of the job is becoming more substantive, interesting, less routine, and uh, I would say it's, uh, it's more fulfilling. Uh, and uh, parallel to that, we also need to understand that uh, upskilling in terms of digital, the different segments of society, will also create the new opportunities for those companies which I mentioned also earlier, the called stand-up companies and start-up companies. And um, they are seeking heavily also for the people who are more risk-willing, uh, are able to take more new interesting activities and have skill to that. So the traditional kind of uh, career path is shifting a little bit away and um, most of the countries, the startup sector during the COVID and pandemic times was growing with annual growth pace of 30 to 40% on average, which means that we are witnessing a phenomena. We are witnessing a phenomena because those companies are built with a digital DNA, meaning that they are fit for the digital societies. They are addressing a problem 
which is really an an an, an clear and understandable and they are trying to solve that problem with a new modern unique innovative technologies and do it with a teams which are skilled properly so it's kind of perfect storm for governments to look also closer to a startup community and startup as an important and increasingly important sector of the society Einar, wrapping it up, this on this last point, you said that there are more people, of course, that are more willing to take risks at the moment. So who would, mm, let's say, actually consider like entering some of these ventures in the economy. But this means also that there are people right now who, for example, have suffered some income losses from the COVID crisis or who are suddenly, let's say, out of jobs, who are right now in this moment and also in the next few months taking decisions, taking decisions and understanding also what decisions they could take eventually. So one of the signs, just to conclude, let's say, today's today's episode of the podcast, that governments and at the same time the European Union is trying to give or could give is exactly to uh, allocate funds and investment so that to make people understand that this is, this is the pitch where we're playing our game, that the digital field is the pitch where we're playing our game and that probably uh, more effort, both economic and social, needs to be put into that so that exactly we can exploit this momentum post-COVID crisis, which, of course, I mean, uh, as we said, probably many of the consequences of this downturn will still uh, will still have to be, I don't know, we'll, we'll still suffer them. But it means that in any case, something can happen and people can reposition themselves within the economy and as a consequence also within society, upskilling society as a whole in a more distributed manner. It will be very interesting to monitor because once again, this year has been a exercise of decade. We have seen more than during the last decade shifts in society, uh, in economy, in digitalization, and also on the impact of digitalization. And it would be very interesting to see what will be the next couple of years bringing us. Will there be also a similarly decayed type of leaps uh, in front of us? Also considering that this was a, an outburst of uh, a disruptor and change and, uh, let's say, uh, motive of change as, of course, COVID, but the, uh, the impacts, let's say, and the consequences of that will certainly last in the medium and probably also in the long term. Linar, thanks a lot for participating in today's podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, goodbye from Federico and tune in to the next episode. This podcast is brought to you by eGovernance Academy. Tune in on next Wednesday.